So, um, Nate, I got distracted during that song. Um, my, is Lily Sturgill, are you in here, Lily? I called her out in middle school every now and again. I'm going to embarrass her in big church. My daughter and Lily Sturgill are really good friends, and whenever something good happens, they both break out into that chorus. Like, just randomly, like, worship in whatever moment is happening. And so it's just like, I was worshiping, but I'm also, like, thinking about my daughter and her best friend. So it was kind of funny. Anyway, sorry. Thanks. Um, I don't have ADD, I promise. Um, <laughs> Nate's prayer was interesting there at the end. Um, obviously, he knows what we're talking about. I don't, know, I don't know if he was thinking about that this morning or, or if that was just the Holy Spirit that prompted him to say that in his prayer. But um, this morning, I want to talk to you about sacrifice. Um, not, not something maybe we think about often um, when it comes to, uh, to the Christmas and, and all that, but it's something I, I guess my, what God has put on my heart for us today is, is something we should be thinking about uh, rather significantly. The reality is that we all make sacrifices, right? I mean, all the time. Um, whether it's, it's personally, whether it's professionally, whether it's financially, whether it's a sacrifice of time, uh, we all make sacrifices, sometimes for ourselves, um, sometimes for other people. Um, there's been a couple recent occasions where God has put on my heart um, to, to, I guess, take some risks. Uh, risks that I didn't know the outcome w- was going to be. Uh, risks that, that there was no guarantee of, of what was going to happen. Um, and I can tell you that these risks came with sacrifice. Um, they weren't easy to make. In fact, they're, they're not over yet. So that I can't even say they weren't. I mean, they aren't easy to make right now. I'm in the midst of them. Um, over the years, God has asked me to sacrifice many things, personal dreams, desires, career opportunities, money, time, uh, friendships. I've had to sacrifice friendships over the years and more. And every time he's asked, I've, I've been forced to rethink, to reexamine my trust in him and, and, and the role that he plays, God plays in my life. Uh, this past week, in the midst of some of these um, risks that I'm taking right now, these potential sacrifices that, I'm, that God has called me to ask. I, was, I got home one night, and I was, from, I was just overwhelmed, and I, I stood in my kitchen, and, and I, I had the phone out, and I wrote out this, this really long thing that was just really meant to be just for myself. It was kind of a personal note, and, and then all of a sudden, there was a line in there that I thought, this might, I don't know, this might help other people. Um, and so I put it on Facebook, and some of you actually asked me about it this week, like, what's the deal with that Facebook post, Chris? Like, what, what was that about? And I'm like, I know, I hate vague booking. I'm sorry. Um, but it, my, my Facebook post said this, uh, if you don't follow me. Give me the challenging path, for I know not what lies ahead, but I know it is the path that I'm meant to take. Give me the challenging path, for I know not what lies ahead, but I, I know it is the path that I'm meant to take. If you've heard me teach before, you know that I always have a big idea that I build uh, my whole message around. And my big idea this morning is simply this. Great obedience requires great sacrifice. And yes, it sounds a lot like Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. Let's just admit that and move on from there, okay? Um, But during these recent occurrences, these risks that I'm I'm sensing God has asked me to take, um, I'm going to be honest, I really wanted to take the easy path. The, the easy path was definitely the path of least resistance. The, the easy path would, wouldn't have required sacrifice. It wouldn't have required the loss of, of sleep and constant prayer and hours of uncomfortable conversation. There was no potential loss of friendships on the easy path. And yet, I knew. I knew that the easy path was not the one I was supposed to take. The, the easy path is, it's easy. On the easy path, we can depend upon ourselves. 
It's only upon the challenging path where we discover true dependence upon God. It's only upon the challenging path where we discover the great rewards that come from radical obedience to God. And as followers of Jesus, the reason we pursue the challenging path at times is because this is what Jesus did for us. This is the example that he set for us. If you know your scripture, you know the story of of Jesus. You know that at one point near the end, he had had a last meal with his followers. And then uh, he's just overwhelmed. He's in anguish. And he needs you to go off by himself to pray. And so he goes to a place that that was a a popular place for him to go and uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when I was in Israel in 2010, I had the opportunity to go to this garden. And and I was struck by um, the the proximity of the garden. I had always pictured the Garden of Gethsemane out in the wilderness, miles away from Jerusalem, because I knew the story. I knew that that Jesus was being hunted and the the priests and the people were coming after him. They were going to arrest him and and they were going to try him and, and crucify him and all this, right? And so if I'm Jesus, the human Humanity in me says, let's get as far away from Jerusalem as possible. And that's what I'd always pictured. And when I went to Israel, we went to the Garden of Gethsemane. The garden is right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And, and as Jesus knelt that night and prayed, he looked out and he could see where he was going to be crucified. And, and as we read this, this passage in that moment, sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane, it added weight to what Jesus was feeling that night and what the, the experience and the anguish and the sacrifice that he knew he was about to make. And so it says this in Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, and yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus sets an example for us of what it means to sacrifice. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to emulate him in our everyday lives. we're, We're called to forgive because Jesus first forgave us. We're called to show compassion because Jesus showed compassion to us. We're, we're called to love because Jesus first loved us. We're called to sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed for us. At one point to his followers, he said these words, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. We're called to a life of sacrifice. So this Christmas series that we're, we're in called Because He Came, as I said, Bill, Bill started a couple of weeks ago, and last week he talked about Mary and Joseph, and if you didn't, weren't here for that, I encourage you to listen to the podcast. There's some incredible things that maybe you never knew about Mary and Joseph. You never knew about that, that part of the Christmas narrative. Uh, there were things that I learned as I sat out here last week and listened to Bill, so I really encourage you, uh, listen through this entire series as we teach through it. Uh, but he, he talked about how Mary and Joseph, you know, were really two teenagers in the small hick town and, and, and in, in this honor and shame culture. And all of a sudden there's this unexpected pregnancy. And he had this quote in there that I thought was just really good and actually was a great segue uh, into the message today. And so we'll have it up here on the screen. It's a little lengthy, but I want you to read it and hear it. I find Joseph's willingness to share Mary's circumstances to be a wonderful illustration of the humility and sacrifice of what God did for us through Jesus Joseph was a righteous man who wanted little more than to enjoy an uncomplicated existence with the woman he loved. But, as is often the case, obedience to God requires great sacrifice. 
as Mary unjustly suffered the scorn of her community, Joseph willingly set aside his own desires to share her burden. Her injustices would be his. Any misunderstanding she suffered, he would suffer. Before a watching, judging world, his wedding party carried an obviously pregnant bride through the narrow streets of their narrow-minded community back to his home, where he received her as his wife, allowing everyone to think whatever he or she chose to imagine. This is a foreshadowing of the injustice that the innocent Son of God would endure on our behalf. With great obedience comes great sacrifice. There's obvious sacrifices in the Christmas narrative, aren't there? I mean, Mary and Joseph— we know that they had to sacrifice significantly. Uh, last week, as, as we finished the, the sermon, we got up to leave. Um, Chuck Lehman, he, I don't think he's in this service. He's usually in second service. He turned to me and he said, you know, there was another sacrifice that had to make. And I was like, okay, what's that? And he goes, Mary and Joseph's parents. Like, think about them in that community as well. They, they had to suffer the, the, the shame that was coming from the community from this unexpected pregnancy as well. Uh, the shepherds, they had to sacrifice sleep that night. The, the wise men had to sacrifice time as they traveled long distances. And in a really weird, morbid way that we don't talk about in Sunday school, um, families all throughout Jerusalem had to sacrifice because of Herod's lunacy. Remember the wise men came to Herod and, and said, where is the king of the Jews? Well, that was his title. And when you're king, you don't want anybody else to have your title. And so he, he, he feigned worship. He's like, oh, well, hey, go find out and tell me where, where was he born and who was he? And I want to go worship him. And they, they go and they find him and they, through a dream, they realize like Herod's got ulterior plans. And so they, they go back home a different way and Mary and Joseph and Jesus flee to Egypt. And, and Herod, because he's terrified of somebody taking over his power, issues a decree that every boy two years old and younger should be killed throughout the entire region and great weeping went up all throughout that region. We don't talk about that in Sunday school when we talk about Christmas, do we? But there was incredible sacrifice on many families' parts. Jesus, Jesus as God, leaves the throne room of heaven, becomes fully God and fully man, uh, taking the very nature of a servant, as it says in Philippians, and he goes to the cross. And I always love to, t- to remind people that Christmas is about Easter. Christmas is the start it really concludes on Easter when he rises from the dead. And so as we think about Christmas, we have to think about sacrifice because that is why Jesus came, was to be that sacrifice for us. But this morning, I want to talk about another individual, one that, that has really fascinated me for a really long time. Um, and his life, to me, epitomizes the word sacrifice. He's not one that we talk about a lot of times at Christmas. Uh, maybe a brief mention, and Bill mentioned him last week, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about him. And this individual is John the Baptist. And we've, we've got a picture here of what he could have looked like. Um, kind of a rugged man, you know, he's got the, the manly beard going. Um, he had some strange clothing that he wore. He wore camel's hair and um, a jacket and a, a leather belt. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Um, he was just an interesting, interesting dude. And and so, I can't, I, oh man, there's so much I want to talk about John the Baptist. Like, I was talking to Bill earlier this week, and, and I was like, I, I needed an hour on Sunday morning. Like, can we just do a multi-week series on John the Baptist, like starting this week? And he's like, no, you have one Sunday. And so I had to like pare it way down, um, because there's so many things about John the Baptist that I want to geek out on you about, um, with Old Testament connections and New Testament, we just, we'll have to save it for another day. Maybe a whole multi-week series just on John the Baptist. I would love that. Um, but it, so, so kind of cliff notes, or if you're a teenager day, spark notes, right? Is that what it's called today? Sparks notes? Spark notes? Is that right? 
Okay. I'm looking at a high schooler, making sure I got it right. For us old people, it was called Cliff Notes. All right. For you young guys, it's Spark Notes. I don't know why they changed it. Maybe something happened to Cliff. Um, <laughs> but John was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Bill kind of talked about this last week. There was an angelic visitation. Um, Elizabeth and Mary are cousins, which means John the Baptist and Jesus are second cousins. Um, both babies, Jesus and John, are, are sons of promise. John received a calling very early on in his life. I mean, even before he was born, he was called to go and, and before Jesus to prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah, the, the individual that the nation of Israel had been waiting centuries for. As they said, he was a prophet who, who lived in the wilderness. He wore strange clothes. He ate strange things, and he said strange things. He, he's this guy standing on the street corner with the signs uh, saying, Jesus is coming. Get ready, right? Have, we, have you ever seen one of these guys in person? I, it's, it's happened very rarely in my lifetime, but you see him in movies all the time, right? The car's driving down the road, and there's that dramatic moment where everything slows down, and this guy says, repent for the end is near. You're like, boom, boom, boom. Something's about to happen, right? Jesus, John was this guy preparing the way for Jesus. And, and he goes out in the wilderness, and he, he starts to preach, the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of heaven is near, and he's baptizing people. And, and, and the religious leaders of the day are getting kind of freaked out because they're the ones that are supposed to be doing this. They're the ones that are supposed to be talking about the Messiah, not some weird guy out in the wilderness. And so one day they send a, a delegation out to John, and, and he's out there in the river, and he's baptizing people, and he's preaching, and he's teaching. And, and they want to know, like, John, you, you become kind of this big thing. Like, people are coming from all over the region to find out who you are and what you're saying. Like, who are you? Where did you come from? Like, it, sometimes that's not a bad thing, right? When people start coming from all over the place and, and they say, man, who are you? And I can picture John, like, he his head might have gotten a little big. Like, wow, I'm causing some things happening. Things are happening because of me. Like, yeah, I'm a big deal. But over and over and over, what we're going to see is John says, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so these religious leaders, they come to him and they said, who are you? Are you, are you the Messiah? The one that we're all been waiting for, anxiously waiting for? Because if you are, it's kind of unexpected how you're presenting yourself. It's a little strange, to be honest. We expected a king, a general, somebody that was going to conquer the, you know, Rome for us. Um, you're some weird guy in the wilderness. Like, are you the Messiah? And John's like, no, I'm not the Messiah. Well, are you Elijah? Because you sure look like Elijah, and I, that's part of what I want to geek out on you on, but I can't, I'm not going to go there. Um, you sure look like Elijah, and John says, no, not Elijah. They expected Elijah to come back before the Messiah. And then they said, are you the prophet? And, and this is a reference back to, to Deuteronomy uh, 18. And he says, no, I'm, I'm not the prophet. And they're like, well, who are you? If you're not the Messiah, you're not the prophet, you're not Elijah, who are you? And he says, I'm a voice calling in the wilderness prepare the way. There's one coming after me that honestly I'm not even worthy to be a slave to. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And John says, ultimately, but I am a slave. So I'm not the, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I am a slave. And I think back to Bill's message last week when Mary's response, when the angel came and, and she said, why me? And then and, and God gave her a response and she said, I'm yours. I'm a slave. I'm a bond servant. The Greek word is doulos. I'm a bond servant. Meaning I willingly give up all of my rights to you. I surrender everything to you, God. Mary said it. John said it. We need to say it. With great obedience, 
comes great sacrifice. When we choose to follow Jesus, we become doulos, bondservants, slaves of Jesus. We give up our rights, our freedoms. We give up control. We surrender to the will of God. This is the path that, that John took throughout his entire life. His entire life purpose was to prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah. And when people would come to him and, and he, they would say, John, you're the man. He'd go, no, he's the man. And in fact, John's followers came to him and said, John, like Jesus is starting to get a crowd. Like people are starting to follow that guy over there. And John went, great, you guys go, follow him. He told his own followers, I'm not the man, go follow him. It's all about him. And one of my favorite verses when it comes to leadership, John 3.30, John says this, he must become greater, I must become less. And in fact, the day that John baptized Jesus marked the beginning of the end of his ministry. No longer was it about him. It never was anyway. But from that moment on, everything pointed to Jesus. He continued to live in the wilderness. He continued to preach and teach. He continued to baptize. He, he continued to confront sin. And in fact, this is what landed him in jail, facing a death sentence. You see, after the Herod that we read about early in the Christmas narrative, uh, Herod dies and his three sons take over the kingdom and Rome divides the kingdom between the three sons and there's one son called Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas kind of liked his brother's wife a little too much to the point that he stole her away from his brother and brought her in as his wife. And when you're a prophet of God and you're called to confront sin in your your country, when you rebuke the king... They don't really like that very much. And so Herod arrested John, put him in prison. We actually, when I was in Israel, went to this site as well, where it was believed that, that John was held in prison. But Herod had a little bit of respect. Herod Antipas had a little bit of respect for John, maybe a little more fear of his followers, didn't want to revolt, didn't want to lose his power that Rome had given him. And so wasn't rushing off to murder John, to, to, to kill John. But Herodias... Herod's wife, formerly his brother's wife, didn't like John at all because John was pretty vocal about their sin. And so she was always looking for ways to kill him. And one day her daughter danced for Herod at this banquet and and Herod just kind of flippantly says, whatever you want, even up to half the kingdom is yours. And she goes to her mom and says, this is what Herod said, what should I do? And her mom said, here's my chance. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter right now. And John waiting in prison this whole time. I mean, can you imagine this? Building up to this moment? Like you're in prison day after day, month after month, maybe year after year, and you have a death sentence hanging over your head. You don't know how this is going to end. And, 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 and you've believed in Jesus your entire time. Like you've been the guy out there pointing everybody to Jesus. Your trust in Jesus is complete, but you're sitting in this putrid, small, cramped jail cell. And doubt begins to creep into your heart. And so you you wonder, is Jesus the Messiah? Did I back the right guy? Because there's been other guys who who claimed to be the Messiah, and they were proven to be false messiahs. And John's like, did I just waste my life? And so he, he takes a couple of his followers. Followers were allowed to visit him in prison. And he says, go find Jesus and ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who was to come? Or it's... Did I back the wrong guy? So we read this in Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist, who was in prison, 
heard about all the things the Messiah was doing, Jesus. So he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Think about John sitting in prison. Like, he knows what the Messiah was supposed to do. He knows who this, what this guy was supposed to be able to do for the nation. And so his disciples go to Jesus and ask him that question, and Jesus looks at him in deep, deep love for John, deep compassion. He says, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. And he quotes two passages from Isaiah, and this is where I am going to geek out on you, okay? So I'm just warning you. He quotes two passages from Isaiah. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. And so Jesus, in response to John's question, quotes a passage from Isaiah that John is going to be very, very, very familiar with. And in fact, it's probably the verses that John was hanging his hat on as far as Jesus being the Messiah. And these passages are in Isaiah. We have it up here on the screen. He said, these are going to be the signs that the true Messiah has come. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, the good news is preached, and the prisoners are set free. That's what Isaiah says. These are the signs that the true Messiah has come. And so John, sitting in prison, languishing in prison, is thinking about these verses and going, I I know he's healing the blind. I know those who can't walk are starting to walk. I, I know that the lepers are cured, the deaf are hearing, the dead are raised to life, the good news is being preached, and glory, hallelujah, the prisoners being released, right? And so his followers go to Jesus, and Jesus gives them this response. And here's the comparison between the passage in Isaiah and what Jesus said. The blind see, the lame walk. Tell John, yeah, the lepers are being cured, the deaf are hearing. The dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached. And? So imagine John sitting in prison, waiting for that final line. The prisoners are set free. And his followers recite what Jesus said, and John's like, you forgot part, right? I mean, there's more coming. Like, the prisoners are set free? Sorry, John. Jesus didn't say that. And John goes, okay. I'm willing to make that sacrifice. And Jesus is the Messiah. And this is the cost that I have to pay, John says, to follow Jesus. May it be so. See, there's a cost to following Jesus. Whenever I talk to people about giving their life to Jesus, I really try to avoid the emotional appeal. Yes, I want to love you into heaven, and I'm not real big on scaring you out of hell, but I'll do it if we need to. Um, But at some point before you say yes to Jesus, I'm going to sit down and talk with you. I'm going to say there's a cost to following Jesus. You're going to have to make some sacrifices. I mean, these, these are the words that Jesus says about the cost of following him. So as they were walking along, I'm in, in Luke 9, as they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, you know, foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Are you willing to be homeless for me? Because that's what it's going to take, he says to this guy. He said to another person, uh, come follow me. And the man agreed, yeah, great, hey, I'll follow you, Jesus. But he said, Lord, let me first return home and, and bury my father Jesus said, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. 
And he says, are you willing to give up the things of this earth for the things of heaven? To that guy, that's what he says. There's another said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to this man, are you willing to sacrifice your family for me? Because for that guy, that's what he was going to have to sacrifice. And for each one of us, what God is asking us to sacrifice is different. And throughout the Old Testament, I'm, I've been reading through the Bible in a year this year with some good friends, and, and we're reading through the, the, the Old Testament prophets. Man, some of the things that they were asked to do, to, to sacrifice for the name of God. I mean, walk around naked? No thanks. Lie on their sides for months? Not like hours. Not like a 45-second side plank, but like lay on your side for months, right? Uh, Cook all of your food over human poop. It's in the Bible. And the prophet's like, well, okay, God, you kind of went too far. Can I at least cook over raccoon poop? Is that okay? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. I don't know why I said raccoon poop. Um, Animal poop. I have feces written here, but I felt like that was too formal. So he asked another guy to marry a prostitute. He says, go out and find, find the woman that everybody knows. Marry her. Bring her home. Have kids. And by the way, um, you're going to name your kids some really interesting things. In fact, your first daughter that's born, you're going to name her not loved. Wow. And then he, he, I mean, just what these Old Testament prophets had to do, and John is following suit. We know about the apostles, you know, the people who were closest to Jesus. Church history tells us that you know, after Judas betrayed Jesus, and uh, that 10 of the 11 remaining apostles were martyred for their faith. 10 of the 11 were killed because they wouldn't recant Jesus. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, these words about early followers. It says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people, these are great things. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and and put whole armies to fight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. I'll join that hall of faith. Absolutely. I want to be on that, that team. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on. And he says, but others, others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a, a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. Wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. I'm not sure I want to join that team. And yet that's the sacrifice that God has called many Christians throughout history to live out. I, I read a book um, just a couple months ago. Uh, it was recommended to me by Jeff Ringenberg, who works with Youth for Christ. And just a coincidental meeting at the Blend. Um, I was there working one day and, and on a sermon, and he came in, and we got to talking. We're good friends. And, and he, he was telling me about this book he just read, and, and it was, sounded really intriguing. So I downloaded it on my iPad, and, and I read it um, over the next week or so after that. And it was this book called The Insanity of God by, by Nick Ripken. And that's a pseudonym. We don't actually know this guy's real name um, because he's wanted around the world for what he's done uh, in the name of Jesus. 
So he, he and his wife were missionaries in Somalia. Somalia, uh, for those of you who don't know, maybe I'll connect the dots. Black Hawk Down, uh, that movie. Um, he was missionary there. He and his wife were missionaries in Somalia. Uh, they were there before um, the world's eyes turned to Somalia. They were there during everything with Black Hawk Down and Operation Freedom and all that, or Iraqi Freedom, or I forget what it was, not, not Iraqi Freedom, getting, never mind. They were there during Black Hawk Down, and they were there after Black Hawk Down. They were there for a lot. And, and, and Nick tells in his book stories of being a missionary in this, this country, which was very, very anti-Christian. He estimates that there were about 100 followers of Jesus by the time when he arrived in the entire nation of millions of people. There were 100 followers of Jesus. And when he left several years later, he estimates there were zero because they were all killed. And they were all killed because they were associated with him at one point or another. And he had this burden that he had to carry home with him. And he and his wife left the mission field just really devastated and questioning God. And what are you doing, God? Was all of this effort, was there any good that came out of all of this? And then they went through this, this healing process for a couple of years. And, and then they were at a, a seminary and they had a group of college students. And they would share stories of that. And they would be encouraged by these group of college students. And, and they began to pray, okay, maybe God, you have something else for us. Uh, what, what is that going to be? And they thought another mission opportunity um, in one place that they were going to go and move and live and, and serve. And God put it on his heart. He said, I want you to tour for the next two years. He goes, I want you to travel around the world and, and meet with and interview persecuted Christians all over the world. And he started in Russia and, and went to China and went to all these other places all around the world. And what, what started out as a, a two-year commitment turned into a 15-year-plus commitment that he and his wife have spent decades now traveling the world, talking to persecuted Christians, hearing their stories of what they've had to gone through. And he said what's overwhelmed him and amazed him is that almost every one of them, they've been tortured, they've, they've been humiliated, their kids have been brought in front of the school and publicly humiliated for their, their parents being followers of Jesus. Um, they've lost businesses, they've been arrested and tortured, they've been murdered, and yet time and time again, they experience in these persecuted Christians great joy. And, and, and Nick would, would, early on, would always say things like, wow, I'm, I'm going to be praying for you. And, and these persecuted Christians would be like, why? Like, why are you praying for us? We're praying for you. Like, in, in your country, I, we hear that, that you, you can go to church anywhere you want and without fear of being persecuted. Um, you, you can read your Bible. You have multiple versions of the Bible. We have to divide a Bible between a whole church and memorize it in, f- in fear of getting caught with it. And, and, and we hear all of this stuff, and yet we hear that there's very little joy for Jesus in your country. And he says, so we, we pray for you. Why are you praying for us? And he shared one story. I thought it was really interesting. Sitting in an upper room with, with um, Christians in China, and it was all pastors and leaders. And, and these two younger guys, like mid to late 20s, were there. And, and they were really eager, and they were talking. And, and all the older uh, Chinese Christians were kind of like just waving them off. Like, Nick, don't listen to them. And finally, Nick's like, okay, why am I not supposed to be like, these guys are, are amazing what they're telling me. And he goes, they haven't been tortured and imprisoned yet. Like, they don't really know what it means to follow Jesus. And he's like, uh, okay, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with that, right? And that was early on. I, I, I would encourage you to read this book. It will change your perspective on the blessings of your life, on, on, on our faith, on the plight of our brothers and sisters around the world. First Peter says this, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. 
Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. And that was written centuries ago, but is still relevant today. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are being persecuted, tortured, imprisoned, murdered for their faith. The faith that we gather here this morning to celebrate, to learn, to learn how to be obedient. Remember, great obedience requires great sacrifice. So all of that was set up for a 30-second application. This is, you've got to do the hard work today. I'm setting the stage for what God wants to do in you today as you leave here. What sacrifices would God have you make in your life? It's unlikely that any of us will be martyred for our faith, although it's not impossible. But would he have you sacrifice friendships, relationships with somebody for him, to choose him over that person or those people? Would he have you sacrifice money, your purpose, your calling in life, maybe your pride, your ego, your status? Would he have you surrender and sacrifice your rights to another person to put their needs above your own? What? What sacrifices is God calling you today? Because Jesus set the example for us. Throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, the followers of Jesus have set the example for us. Throughout the last 2,000 years, our brothers and sisters have set the bar pretty high for sacrifices that we're called to make in the name of our faith. What sacrifices would God have you make today? Because you call yourself a follower of Jesus. We're going to have the band come out. They're going to play a song uh, by Shane and Shane. And it's a song that Nate sent to me earlier this week. And, and I sat and listened to it. And it's just, it's got some, uh, almost a haunting sound to it, lyrics to it. And I just want to read maybe the first part of that. And then they're going to sing this. And you're just going to stay in your seats. And you're going to listen. And you're going to pray. It says, I come, God, I come. Return to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You strike down to bind me up. You say you do it all in love, that I might know you in your suffering. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship Turn to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You strike down to bind me up. You say you do it all in love, that I might know you in your suffering. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you, though you take from me, I will bless your name, though you ruin me, still I will worship, sing a song to the ones of life. 